You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Avoiding Chargeback Turbulence, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and IATA. Hello from London, and welcome to our webinar, Avoiding Chargeback Turbulence, Your Ticket to First Class Chargeback Management, brought to you by Airlines Magazine, IATA, and Chargebacks 911. I'm Didi Doak, the Head of Content Management for Airlines, and I'd like to introduce our panelists for today. We have Monica Eaton-Cardone, the COO and co-founder of Chargebacks 911. We have Dennis Curler, Global Head of Payment, Fraud, and Treasury for Get Your Guide. And we also have Paul Van Alphen, founder of Up in the Air. He is an independent travel payment consultant. Over to you, Monica. Thank you so much for having us. And we are definitely uh, looking forward to getting things started, um, as, as Didi had introduced. So we really specialize in chargebacks. And the whole purpose of this session is to give you guys an overview of what's happening in the chargeback and dispute space, um, how this is affected or how the schemes and regulatory changes are affecting chargebacks and disputes and debit memos and more importantly, what you can do about it. Um, if we take a look, you know, just as a high level, let's take a look at the top five trends in the industry. So we know that social media has taken us all by storm, and this has been good and bad in some ways. Uh, there's been a digital evolution. Um, there's, there's evolving consumer behavior as a result, and especially when it comes to travel, more than ever, this one-stop shop, you know, the bundled option where you can get everything in that package is, is becoming a, a, a bigger and bigger sales point, um, especially for U.S. customers, I will say. Um, analytics. This continues to, to, you know, take shape in the industry. And, and one of the most um, exciting changes, in my opinion, is the fact that you know, the industry is moving toward creating a more standardized data format, data sharing. Um, even with the regulatory changes, we're going to get into VCR and some of the, the visa um, movements, PSD2, MCM, GDPR. There's, there's a whole bunch of acronyms. Um, but all of this is taking direction to help codify a unified format, which is fantastic for us. And then last but not least, so fifth major change in the industry that is affecting chargebacks and disputes, um, we have mobile APMs and NDC. Um, and on that topic, I'm actually going to ask Paul, uh, uh, what, what potential liability does NDC present for airlines? Tell us a little bit about how this works. <clears throat> well, uh, thank you, Monica, and, and good afternoon from uh, sunny Amsterdam. Um, with the introduction of NDC, um, not only potential liability, of course, uh, happen, but also opportunities. And um, <clears throat> but from a payment flow perspective, the main difference between the traditional 
uh, booking via the GDS and, and handling of the payments, uh, passing on the car details to the airlines over the BSP rails. The main difference is that the authorization does not take any more place during the the booking uh, on the GDS directly to the schemes outside of the view of the airlines, but it's actually in control of the airline. They can apply their own fraud screening in due course, hopefully also their own 3D secure. And that means that they also become basically liable uh, for any uh, actions that happen later in the form of a dispute or a chargeback. Um, so uh, it's a shift from uh, the, the, the current uh, way of working where the, the HC is mainly responsible under IATA Resolution 890 for uh, the, the chargeback handling with the, with the debit memos. And now it will, from an airline perspective, once NEC is rolled out, and that will take a couple more years, by the way, it's only a fragment of the, uh, of the total number of bookings right now, uh, but it will more and more look like a direct uh, booking that's made or a direct payment that's made online on the IAMI.com website. Okay, great. So in, in simple terms, I mean, give, what about an example? Could you give us an example of um, if I'm an airline and I get a chargeback and I used, you know, this, this NDC method, which really has given me a way to distribute content through third parties, mm -hmm. um, what happens? Is How is my liability shifted from how it is yeah. today? Well, in both cases, the airline is a merchant of record, uh, but it comes with a different rule, a different set of uh, responsibilities. And in basically, from a an, um, uh, from a chargeback handling perspective, it will be exactly the same if if I would book as a consumer directly on the airline.com website and I dispute the transaction later on. If it's friendly fraud, if it's fraud, if it's a you know service not rendered, uh, the the transaction will be will be end up in the same bucket if you like as if it were an online transaction. So it 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 adds. Uh, liability and also responsibility to what the airline is doing. But okay, they also win on the front end. They have more control over the, the order and they have more control over the offering to the uh, to the travel agency. Yeah, so there's a, there's a bit of change in um, in the liability shift uh, in terms of chargeback. So, but the good news is, like Paul said, you know we do have a couple years with this getting rolled out. But it's something that you definitely want to get educated, understand how it affects you. Um, and then make take steps in the right direction. Um, so so let's talk about you know what a friction what a frictionless chargeback process is. So in the industry we have all heard frictionless. It, it's definitely a, it's been a buzzword for a few years. However, it's usually um, adhered to the authorization process or you know the checkout process. We want to remove as many obstacles as possible. Well, when it comes to chargebacks, this is a new trend in chargebacks. Chargebacks are on the rise because what, what banks are doing as well, well, they're, they have customers. They want to satisfy their customers. And their customers, all these consumers, they want to be able to resolve disputes without any obstacles. Well, as soon as you remove the friction, so we're no longer, if you call your bank to, to file a chargeback, you don't get asked 50 questions. You don't get told you need to go file a police report like it used to be, you know, 30 years ago. Um, instead, today, many banks, especially in the U.S., are providing their customers the ability to literally dispute a transaction by just clicking a button on their mobile. And as a result, that is increasing the number of chargebacks. So here's a, here's a statistic. The number of automatically triggered chargebacks increased 334% in 2017. So this is, you know, before it used to be a manual process, 
there was probably a lot more due diligence. It was slower. Well, now things are moving more rapid. You have a lot of e-commerce, and you have mobile dispute functions. Now, in the U.S. alone, mobile disputes have reported a 32% increase for U.S. dispute inquiries. And what this means in the travel industry, um, because travel is generally a large purchase, it's something that you budget for, you make it in advance, there's a lot of, there's a lot of space to come up with all the different things that can mess up your plans, you know, your flight gets canceled. As we know, chargebacks have a tendency to follow travel, and they are one of the Achilles heels of this industry. Um, so what, what can we do to help prevent, help prevent chargebacks? Not just on the fraud side, but when it comes to what we call cardholder disputes or service disputes, when a customer is literally just given such a convenient method that they can go into their mobile device, look at the transaction, look at their bank account, and literally just click a button saying, you know, the service was not delivered or something was wrong or I had to cancel XYZ. It's not necessarily fraud. It's another type of chargeback. This is increasing. Um, Dennis, what, what's the best way to discourage a customer from filing a dispute like this? I mean, what, what do you guys do in your organization that you find is more is most effective sure hello everyone here's dennis good afternoon also from my side um thank you for giving this over monica um just quickly um about who get your guide is i mean we are um, an online marketplace um who connecting demand and um, supply for tours and activities and what we mainly does do um to let's say um prevent service disputes from happening is that we invested quite a lot in our ground operations, like meaning pe having people on the ground to check really the service of the partners, making sure the quality is delivered as promised. Was there any, under, any other circumstances who may have affected that the service level wasn't held as promised? Um, was there any um, natural catastrophe which may be caused that the Eiffel Tower was, for example, closed? So we then have a couple of processes in place where we automatically refund the customers, do give them the possibility to reuse their vouchers or entry tickets um, on a different date. So there are a couple of scenarios we heavily invested in to make sure really um, to deliver the best service and quality to the customer as possible. That's, of course, not always 100% um, working, but in most of the cases, we saw like um, that it has a strong influence on, on getting at least a friendly chargebacks filed in and being more um, customer-focused and centric. That was at least our small success in, in preventing those disputes um, from getting happening. Okay, awesome. Uh, so... And, and collecting data, I know you guys do a great job of collecting like all the different data points. A, a lot of organizations could definitely learn um, from that as well. Just to, to give everybody just an overview of some statistics that have influenced um, some of the dispute trends. So we've had 68 rule changes this year, and you know that I, I, I wish that I could say that those were all for our benefit. Um, but 22% increase in chargebacks, 26% increase in ADMs, 46% uh, of all of the chargebacks that are filed in, in travel are credit or debit, uh, or I'm sorry, are credit. So 
So that continues to rate to rise. And and here's a really interesting statistic. Over 70% of all travel is booked by women. And in the industry, just about 80% of chargebacks are of cardholder chargebacks are instigated by women. So there's definitely, you know, not because I'm a woman, but I will say we have a, there's there's definitely a trend where more and more women are are booking travel, they're you know, finding opportunities. Um, we already know that women um, often control the the spending and some of the family decisions in their family um, and are definitely active online. So I think another tip that that we could take from these statistics is thinking about your audience and what types of data, like Dennis was saying, you know, make sure that you're following up, um, make sure that you've You've, you've provided confirmations, you're collecting that data, um, and, and make sure that you, you really start to understand how your audience may be changing um, and what they are interested in. Um, so just regulatory changes and scheme changes. So first on the topic, this is Visa Claims Resolution. So you probably have heard this, another acronym uh, called VCR. and this is, you know, I like to remember, okay, what does VCR do? Well, when I was a kid, I would always come up with, like, what do things stand for, you know, so that you can remember, okay, this is what it means. But VCR is, in my opinion, could stand for V, VNPI, this is Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry. This is an awesome tool I'm going to tell you about. C, chargeback code changes. Actually, just change. Just think of change. So we have code changes, there's been nomenclature changes, word changes, definitions, process changes. Um, so the C, think of change. And then R, reduce timeframes. So VCR, Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry, C, chargeback code changes, and R, reduce timeframes. Now, just from a high level, then the changes, as I, as I said, we have new terminology, we have um, automated processing or blocking. There's two distinct workflows. One is called allocation, which is a simple way to think of this. Most, most of us look at all of our chargebacks and we divide them into two buckets. So you have non-fraud and fraud. And what Visa has done is they've taken a similar uh, approach They've, they've made four different classifications, but they've put it into two different routes. So they have allocation, which most of us would know as fraud. These are authorization problems, fraud, et cetera. And then they have collaboration, which takes a different type of workflow, and most of us would see that as non-fraud. Now, with these two distinct re workflows, they've also changed the way that reason codes operate. Um, it's not a huge change. It's mostly, you know, adding some additional criteria and really breaking down the reason code so that we can delineate even more information. Um, they've, and then on response timeframes, major, major, major change on this. So if you have been used to taking, you know, 30 days to dispute a chargeback, then you would have definitely felt the pain when VCR was introduced because now 
a bank no longer has, you know, 30 or 43 days to respond to a chargeback, that time frame has been cut down to just 20 days. Otherwise, a penalty is assessed. So technically, your acquirer has 30 days, but you'll end up paying a fee if you don't respond and if they don't respond back to Visa um, within just 20 days. So that means your goal as a merchant now, this is, this is a huge impact. So if your acquirer has to send Visa a case in 20 days, you better bet on, you know, you need to have the case ready for the acquirer in probably 10 or even less. Now, the, la the last thing that I'll say on, on uh, VCR, I don't want to get too complicated on this because it's hard to explain just with words, um, but when, when it comes to chargebacks, Previous to VCR, we lived in a world where there was never any charges and never any fees if a merchant just decided to do nothing. So if you're an OTA or an airline and you just don't have time to deal with your chargebacks, it's just the cost of doing business, you got the chargeback fee, and that's that. Now you're just managing the thresholds. Once VCR hit, things changed. Now, if you simply ignore your chargebacks, you're going to pay a non-response fee. And you know, even though this is a small fee, it does add up. And you can avoid this fee entirely as long as you respond. Even if your response is, I'm accepting liability for everything and I really don't want to respond with one single document or case, you still need to take responsibility to give feedback. This is a great change in the industry because think about it, if you aren't providing any feedback to Visa or to the issuer, then nobody has any additional information to make different decisions. You could continue to get chargebacks and you, you know, we, we can't actually expect the industry to change and reduce friendly fraud without instituting a change like this where there is more fluid um, flow of data. So uh, that's, that's all I'm going to say about VCR except for one item that I forgot to mention or give you a bit, a bit more information about, and that's VMPI. Um, so Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry, you may have heard of Visa Direct. Um, this is a great uh, vehicle that, that Visa has created that allows um, facilitators like ourselves uh, or you know, partners of Visa to be able to submit transaction information to resolve a chargeback in the dispute phase or refund a dispute in order to prevent a chargeback. Um, so, so let me give you an example. Let's say that one of your customers contacts Capital One. Well, Capital One is going to send a request Visa, and then Visa would be able to send that request to, let's say that um, you end up getting that request from Visa. Well, it's in a pre-chargeback stage. You're able to send digital content to Visa so that Visa can send that back to Capital One and actually help with that decision process to prevent a chargeback from being filed that shouldn't have been filed in the first place. If there was a fraudulent uh, inquiry, then the airline or OTA would have the ability to just refund the, the inquiry and prevent the chargeback. So great progress 
uh, really an efficient, you know, moving as in an efficient direction to help normalize the data and make things more efficient. Um, on card schemes, so there's, you may have heard um, some talk about other card schemes, uh, like MasterCard, for example. Is MasterCard coming up with something like VCR? And the answer is yes. And we're probably going to see um, other payment methods and schemes also follow suit. Uh, Visa has definitely been a pioneer in this scenario. So MasterCard has, is, is developing something similar um, to VCR, similar type of, of scenarios, but different in a way that they've planned on giving airlines or merchants more time to respond, still allowing um, merchants to be able to respond to a dispute or, or to a chargeback in the dispute phase or in the inquiry phase to prevent chargebacks from being filed. Um, great news across the board. The, the, the only bad news here is that as an OTR airline, you really have to be diligent to make sure that you're collecting the right data, you have data integrity, everything is centralized, and be prepared to dedicate some IT resources to make sure that you can really leverage these opportunities as they come. And make sure that you stay up to date on your rules. Um, GDPR, another regulation, we all have heard about this. Um, this is really the right to be forgotten. And I think we're, we're pretty well ingrained now with GDPR. Um, it was a painful process for many of us, but, uh, but that's, that's going well, and it's definitely it's starting to affect some trends in the U.S., so we're thinking maybe they will get on board. And PSD2, so large-scale reform of payment process. Um, now we have strong authentication that is going to be uh, coming in place very, very, very soon, and that is a mandate. So definitely when it comes to chargebacks, if you are if, – if you have – um, all of the, the right authentication in place, that gives you the ability to automatically resolve um, chargebacks, which is a fantastic thing to be able to do. Um, and just one, one point on that quickly. You know, a lot of people will ask, um, hey, with all of the changes in the, the industry to help reduce fraud and help reduce fraud chargebacks, well, are they all going to go away? Well, here's the, here's the thing. When you have customers or you have buyers and you have sellers, there's always going to be disputes. And what we've seen over and over again, especially in chargebacks, is that bell curve trend. So what happens if you have a customer and they missed their flight and they were uh, charged 1,000 pounds, then they may be, they, they may feel like they need to get a refund. You know, it's, it's not their fault. That something happened. We've all heard of these stories. Well, maybe they're not going to call and claim fraud because strong authentication was used, and they maybe they used their debit card and it was an EMV terminal. Well, all of those methods are blocked. But what's going to happen, and we're starting to see these trends, is we'll see a shift from fraud chargebacks to non-fraud because there's a whole bunch of other reasons that can be used for filing a chargeback 
like services that, you know, they maybe a woman calls and says, you know, um, I was promised something and I, I didn't receive it. Or my, you know, my seat didn't work and I couldn't recline. My, the video display didn't work. The hotel that checked me in did something wrong. There's, so we're starting to see, uh, you know, the more that we try to crack down on the amount of frivolous chargebacks, the more creative the environment is getting. Um, so if we look at, you know, the regulatory environment uh, with GDPR, with PSC2, definitely Europe has been on a bit of a crackdown in terms of lots of rules that have influenced this environment. Um, Dennis, does, does GDPR affect customers uh, that you would sell to who are located in the U.S.? I know a lot of a lot of viewers probably have this question, and what regulation governs these U.S. customers? Yeah, sure, I take that over. I mean, we're um, a company based in Germany, so as you just uh, well summarized, GDPR was hitting us as well, and it went effective, if I remember correct, in 1st of May this year. And also we put quite a lot of effort into that topic to get that done. Um, U.S. customers, as we are operating out of Germany, it's definitely also a topic um, um, for us, meaning if, if we acquire a U.S. customer, he has exactly the same right as any other country out of Europe, meaning also he has the possibility to get forgotten, and that may also cause some challenges looking forward in terms of if we do get a chargeback in the future, do we have sufficient data to represent the case? Is he probably already deleted with all the information and cookies we have stored so far? On the flip side, I mean, if you are a U.S.-based company just operating out of the States, I would say GDPR is not effective at all, right? I think that was quite often the benefit of U.S.-based customers, where they, they gather a lot of information, staters, like all the Airbnbs, Facebooks, and Googles did, and um, no one is really caring about um, what will really happen um, with those informations. Um, Looking forward, will be pretty interesting how the U.S. government will decide on, let's say, potential future plans, whether something similar to GDPR will be, will be um, created in the States as well. But from the very moment, it really depends on where you are you based, what is your local law and enforcement to cover, and based on that, you can really decide is it worth to invest into or are you probably forced um, to invest in that. Okay, excellent. Thank you. If we if we take a look at um, let's just look at understanding chargebacks uh, and what it what what uh, what the the whole process looks like especially you know you bring GDPR and all these other things into the equation generally it leaves us with messy operations chaotic finance um, growing risk and that gives you a lot of challenges you have um, an expensive situation, it affects your bottom line, um, it affects your reputation, it's confusing, it confuses your customers, and of course there's a lack of common rules. Well, when we look at the chargeback life cycle, it seems simple. It, you, you start with an initial claim, then you can compile evidence or decide to dispute it, and then you get the final decision. But in reality, it's not that simple. And those of us who deal with this understand exactly why the industry is moving toward trying to make this a much more simple process. This is actually an image of how the, the chargeback life cycle really looks. And then, of course, we have reason codes. 
So, yes, Visa has changed all of their reason codes, which was definitely has put uh, a, a, a damper in a lot of systems. We've had to redo tons and tons of technology to make sure that it works around these new these new uh, de definitions and workflows. Now, when we look at the travel industry, though, then the travel industry adds another layer of complexity that, that other merchants um, who are not in travel generally won't feel as much. So you have direct channel versus indirect, card not present, of course. Um, oftentimes, as we know, the traveler is not the card holder. There's lacking standards. Um, virtual account numbers, bundled offers. Um, at the end of the day, when you're in travel, you, you unfortunately are participating in even a higher risk scenario because of all of these other attributes. So oftentimes it comes up that, uh, you know, the, the secret to success is just migrating to different payments and just eliminate cards. Um, Paul, I know that everyone asked you this question. How successful is that? And, you know, and, and what, at what cost? Um, yeah, it's, well, <clears throat> uh, I think what we can say is that already in the early 2000s, the first airlines started to explore offering um, non-card payments, alternative forms of payments, local forms of payment, and um, not so much in the U.S. because it's a credit card-centric market, and all the systems, you know, going back 40, 50 years have been based on this 16-digit, uh, you know, number and, and the way that uh, it, it, it works over, the, over these credit card rails. And uh, introducing alternative forms of payment, local forms of payment um, can help you grow sales, can help you uh, reduce uh, risk uh, of fraud because uh, some of them are completely, like, guaranteed, are risk-free. Others have a limited risk. Um, there might be, a, you know, a cost-saving. Um, so there's a lot of elements, but it also might be an impact on, on the overall cost flow. And it took the airlines quite a number of years to figure out exactly how to fit in alternative forms of payment, and some airlines still have not done that. Uh, but I think it all comes down to a, a holistic approach, to a good, uh, you know, uh, payment strategy across all the, the stakeholders and all the channels uh, within the airline and make sure that, you know, if it's um, if it's you, the way you handle your cards, if it, if it, how you what kind of platforms of payment that you offer, how you manage your fraud, how you manage your chargeback, it all needs to be part of an overall strategy. And and then I think different forms of payment, alternative forms of payment are are a good part of it. And in some countries, like a good example is my home base, Netherlands, where Ideal is a real-time bank solution, uh, which was introduced around 2005, represents for most of the airlines that are selling here in the Netherlands up to 50 or even sometimes more for low-cost carriers percent of their sales online. So, And that's a, a small fixed fee and guarantee. And it's also very important. It's the preferred, uh, the most convenient, the most uh, accepted form of payment here. Uh, and there are other examples around the world as well. But overall, I would say 85% of the payments done uh, for, in the online channel for airlines are still based on cards. And even behind some of the wallets or most of the wallets, a lot of the payments actually in the background happens with cards. Uh, but we see a trend towards uh, instant payments or bank-based payments. And in some countries, it's still cash around where you can also you know, mix it into your online booking system. Okay, thank you so much. And and uh, Dennis, just to get your your two cents on this, um, what percent of of payments that that you take are cards um, for people for those that are traveling or your your customers outside of Germany? Yeah, I mean, credit card is still one or the most used um, um, 
the most used payment method form globally. So we have um, a coverage of 75% where customers are using cards. We invested quite a lot into localized payment methods, um, um, not only like to reduce risk and cost, but also making the customer feel home, I would phrase it, meaning offering the local currency, the local payment method. As Paul just mentioned, ideal, it's a must-have in my opinion whenever you operate um, in e-commerce, in travel, or in the airline business and covering the Dutch markets. It's an absolute must-have. It's risk-free. It's super cheap. But there are also other challenges, in particular in Asia or South America, um, and, and some cash payment countries, right, where you can really enter wallets and just um, to attract those customers to do online purchases, which is not pretty common on every country in the world. So um, it's always a business decision in the end, right? So do you want to grow sales? Uh, it does have some time to time some great side effect while reducing the fraud costs and the operating costs. But also um, looking behind the curtains is also like, can you really handle the reporting, the reconciliation? Is the ERP system built on that? Do you have a strong PSP acquirer in place who can support you with that? And as bigger you are, as more challenging it is, and I think also that was back in the days um, preventing a couple of big airlines to introduce those local payment methods as it was not that popular as it is nowadays. Um, but in the end, it's always a case-to-case decision. What's the best, let's say, setup um, for 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 the carrier, the airline, or the OTA they want to offer? Okay, cool. That that makes perfect sense. So, so we we see the same thing. You know, tons of credit card purchases mainly, uh, and and why not? Because the card schemes will give you an insurance policy, and you can always file a, a chargeback. So, so now let's talk about you're going to get them, you're getting chargebacks, you, you probably aren't going to get rid of a card scheme uh, anytime soon. So how do you prevent and dispute them? One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Einstein. And his, he says, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. So you know, when it comes to chargebacks, they really are no different. The more that you understand your data, um, the better you're going to present a solution. When it comes to data, you don't just need to understand um, your own data. So this is a a diagram. It shows the customer and really the transaction cycle, right? So you have data from the customer. You have data from the the store site, whether it's an e-commerce transaction or it was a ticket counter, uh, wherever. Then you have data as a merchant that you're collecting uh, or that you're collecting indirectly from a third party, for example. Then you have your CRSs, GDSs, maybe you have an internal CRM, ERP, um, all of that data also. Um, And then you pass pieces of that data into a gateway or fraud filter that gets enriched. That data gets sent to the processor. Then a little piece of that, so if you can look at the red lines, that represents <clears throat> how much data relevant to you know, the, the entire record gets sent in between each counterpart. Well, at the end of the day, if you imagine that every single one of these little blocks in many ways speaks another language and lives in a totally different region, what is key in being able to create the best defense is making sure that you have all of the data and that you can interpret that data correctly and centralizing uh, your data and making sure you can you can relate that is great so 
So let's talk about um, what, what now you have all of this data. What are you going to do with it? Well, if we take a look at chargebacks, um, first you have a lot of intelligence. But what you want to be able to, um, to, to understand with chargebacks um, is really what caused them. And we call this source insight. So there's really, you know, three spectrums or three sources of chargebacks. First, there's criminal fraud. Now, criminal fraud, you have uh, a totally different – your, your solution on criminal fraud needs to be related to the fraud filter and fraud intelligence that you have. But if you take that section of chargebacks out, now you have all of the chargebacks that you can defend yourself on, you can represent or dispute, and you can actually be, you can be a lot more proactive. This is what DISA's solution is here for, VMPI. MasterCard is coming up with a solution. So, you know, learning to interact with that data is absolutely vital. So looking at a chargeback again, source data, as you can see, we're taking two ends of the spectrum. On the left side, we see merchant error. So this may be, I would consider an error, and I caused a chargeback if my customer called me, called my customer service, and was on hold for 47 minutes. By the way, this is a true story. It happened to me the other day. And, you know, it, it's frustrating because, you have a customer that's calling, they're on hold, waiting to speak to somebody for customer support. They get frustrated and they file a chargeback. Now, the thing is, according to the rules, the merchant has a right to dispute that chargeback because that, in fact, in actuality, is the consumer filing a chargeback when they should have resolved this directly with the merchant. So we call that chargeback fraud or friendly fraud. Um, there's a lot of different words. Uh, so the, the thing that's important to understand is that a lot of chargebacks can be represented or disputed where you can recover the revenue based on the rules that are in place currently. And a, a whole lot of those chargebacks, even if you win the funds back, you can, uh, you can help identify what caused it and prevent those from happening in the first place. So great, great intelligence to keep in mind. Then you have process insight, um, making sure that you understand, was it friendly fraud? Is it the cardholder? Make sure you take apart your process. And in terms of creating the very best defense or offense for chargebacks, the most effective solution, you should have data, um, lab learning. So this means machine learning, AI. Don't forget humans, adding a layer of, of of humans to the mix is always going to get you better results. Um, you should have minimally your data and big data and relationships. Understand how this data interacts with it. And don't forget community data. So a lot of people will ask us, all right, now I need to make a decision. And where, where do I, when do I know I need help managing my chargebacks? Um, and when is it best to keep this as a solution in-house? Well, here's a decision guide. So you should keep, you should keep an in-house solution, and this means you receive your chargebacks and you have your own team go through the data, get educated, learn the rules. But you should always keep it in-house. Really, your rule of thumb is if you have less than 100 chargebacks each month and you can afford the extra time and dedicated resources. 
if the majority of your claims that you're getting are related to service claims or cardholder disputes, it's a great idea to keep it in-house because there's other problems in your organization that you can re- that you you will know better than anyone how to interpret that and solve it. Um, if you only work with one acquirer, working with multiple acquirers makes the process more complicated to interpret, to reconcile. But if you have one acquirer, that's pretty simple. Um, if you only work in one local market and you use just local payment methods, that's also a you know a lot more simple to manage. You can get a hold of where your chargebacks are going and help produce better statistics. And if you have IT resources that you can deploy for automation and opportunities, such as you know opportunities that Visa and MasterCard are are providing. Um, American Express and Discover also have similar types of configurations. Now, th- some, some triggers that should tell you you should consider outsourcing is if you don't have anyone that has time to become an expert with chargeback rules. If you're overtaxing your current team, what's the core focus? If you don't have a core team that can really, really drill in and focus on this, you're not going to get the best results. If you don't know what your net win rate is or your win rate or recovery rate, then chances are you could benefit from from considering an outsourced solution or you can leverage other software technology. And if your chargebacks are increasing and you don't know why or if you're enrolled in a monitoring program, definitely signs that you need uh, additional help. Don't let it get worse. So top five chargeback myths. That, that we can confront here. Uh, first one, these are the absolute uh, most interesting myths that we get all the time. So cards are being replaced by other payment methods. Um, we, we definitely covered that. The fact is consumers probably are not going to give up their credit or assurance anytime soon. Uh, number two, chargeback data is not as valuable as transaction data. So if you think about it, most of us learn the most from our mistakes in in actuality, chargeback data is super valuable. It can, if you know how to read it and you have the right intelligence and mechanisms, then it can give you a, a, a ton of information on really like a quality control department for your entire organization. Uh, number three, fighting pre-arbs is fruitless. So a pre-arb, a second chargeback, an arbitration, um, you know, this this can be a very pesky uh, scenario in the chargeback world, um, but if you if you have something that is invalid and it's unjust, then don't sit on your hands. You, you should definitely you know pick pick some of those at least. Make sure that it's financially feasible because they can be expensive. Um, but but I definitely would not say it's a fruitless activity. And in fact, if you never challenge any pre-arbs, it's probably not the very not the best policy for your business. Number four, friendly fraud is counted the same as any other chargeback. Okay, so this is a great one. So the fact is, with friendly fraud, every time that a friendly fraud chargeback or a cardholder dispute that you didn't that that was totally inaccurate. So think chargeback fraud, cyber shoplifting. Uh, a chargeback that shouldn't have happened in the first place, if you let that customer keep the refund that they got and you don't 
um, make create justice in the scenario, 50% of the time, those customers are going to do it again. And they're going to do it again in less than 90 days. So instead of looking at one friendly fraud chargeback or looking at every single chargeback as being created equal, change your mind frame to consider if you have friendly fraud chargebacks and you do nothing about those, then that is going to add a, a half a chargeback in, in the, you know, over a next period of time. This has been a proven behavior. It's tracked. In order to stop that friendly fraud habit, all you need to do is have an effective dispute. So don't, don't count that the same as a fraud chargeback. You shouldn't be blacklisting friendly fraud customers. You can actually influence a change in their behavior and keep them for life. And number five, your in-house team is doing a great job. So, you know, you, a lot of organizations are, are dealing with increasing chargebacks. It's frustrating. The dispute scenario keeps changing. It's, you, you can't stand back and say, well, we're doing a great job if it's something that's continuing to rob attention. And so what you should be looking for is where is your comparison? Where's your peer comparison? How can you make sure that you're really doing a great job? And, how, and more importantly, you know, it's never great enough. How can you actually improve and get even better? So if we look, um, just to kind of summarize, and then we'll, we'll take a break for a few questions. I have some that actually came in uh, for, for Dennis and Paul. Um, but really, here, here's your goal for first-class chargeback management. What, what you're looking at in your current scene, most of us would assess chargebacks as a cost of doing business, a threat to revenue. If you get a lot of chargebacks, guess what? You're also going to get a lot of issuer declines. So chargebacks and declines are hooked. They're linked. Um, it's, it's an operational weakness. It's lost revenue. It's inefficient. Um, your real goal in taking a look at how you solve the chargeback and dispute problem and really get ahead of it is to create, to use this data to create an opportunity to learn, to improve revenue opportunities. Um, it could be used as a policy uh, effectiveness gauge, like figure out when you, when you started putting different promotions in place or different tracking, how effective was that? Did you continue to get the same types of chargebacks or did you get less? You have better MI or management information, transparency, um, decisions, and it, it helps you to stay focused on continuous improvement. So just a, a quick question while we have um, a few minutes here. Um, Dennis, so if you could tell us, uh, because I think it's just such a great example, that, that chargeback story of the customer um, it was a customer that you had to track down. What type of things have you had to do to actually recover funds from some of these customers? Like how creative do they really get? Well, there are a couple of great examples. Um, I mean, what, what we definitely saw over the past two years that um, we call it um, friendly fraud increased a lot. Um, we see it quite often when customer had interaction with our customer service, customer support, either via, via dialing in or sending emails, like simple requests for getting refunded for non-refundable tickets, 
once you deliver them the message, it's not possible. They just simply hang up, and then a couple of weeks later, you just get simply the, the chargeback file with the fraud reason code. Yeah? Then the, the, the big question is, what was really the story the customer told um, the bank or the issuer, um, how the, the issuer really filed the chargeback. And of course, then it's also quite hard, and that was the next challenge. Even at that days, we, we had a dedicated team in place to manually um, represent all the different cases. And as more cases you get, also the quality you can deliver was getting lower and lower. And at a certain point in time, also, let's say, all the agents working on the chargebacks were really um, asking themselves, uh, is it really like a fraud-related chargeback? It's a fraud reason code. Is it really true? And then you just have limited information, just looking into the booking. You may have potentially some remarks from other colleagues who were working, working on those cases. So I think that trend is really evolving, and um, it's getting more and more intense, and it makes it harder to, to represent. And I think this is where we also met the the both of us where we have been introduced, that is a big challenge, at least for us on the merchant side, as the volumes are getting bigger and um, all the rules are changing so fast in all directions that at a certain point in time, you do not really know any longer, all right, um, what is really um, the mandatory things I should deliver. Um, but ultimately, as you will summarize, as, as more data you have, as more as you can deliver, as more proof you have that you really delivered all the goods or the services um, which you have offered connected to your terms and conditions as, as easier it is to represent the cases. And it's true also you educate um, the issuers and the banks um, once you get more qualitative um, representments in place, meaning that will also, or we definitely saw that, um, that let's say the amount of, of issued chargebacks with the fraudulent reason codes was like decreasing, so it was going down over time. And um, that's at least the story or the um, the um, experience we've made here at Catch Your Guide. Thanks for that, Dennis. Now we've got a question for Paul. Paul, what type of data do you think is most valuable when it comes to chargebacks? Um, yeah, I think if you look at the data flow um, for for airlines, for instance, you're very much depending on you know. The reservation system, the GDS, uh, and and it trickles down all the way to you know the the back office of the merchant, where then if the disputes come in, then you hope that you have received all the data. And uh, knowing that there is like a 40, 50 year history there, and there's a lot of legacy systems, uh, I think it's 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 so important that uh, the richness of the data already starts at, at at the source and then flows all the way to the back end. And um, your there, there are a couple of breaks in that process potentially, and and if the uh, the booking engine or the reservation system actually is able to in, include all that data uh, in the the API call on the file towards the the, the payment gateway or the acquirer, um, and uh, until recently, for instance, um, you know, free secure data or EMV data for for point of sale transactions was not part of the dish the IATA dish format, the global standard for passing on card transactions uh, from the GDSs through the BSPs to uh, the airlines and the acquirers. And uh, with the upcoming mandatory new version next year, now it will be possible actually to include the fully secure data elements and the, the EMV data elements in the file so that also the liability shift can be applied if, you know, if, if, if the input is provided. So um, I think it's all about no input is no output and, and you have to really focus on making sure that uh, the, the data trickles down all the way from the very beginning till the, till, till the very end, because otherwise uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to to manage those chargebacks. Thank you for that, Paul. 
Now, Monica, I've got a question for you. Now, we've talked today about, you know, people's um, preference for using credit cards um, in the, the current environment, but is there any role that cryptocurrency plays at this point in chargebacks, and how do you see that developing? Sure. Uh, great question. So just like any other um, alternative payment method, there, there definitely is a lot of momentum um, with cryptocurrency moving into the direction of being, you know, a, a having more staying power. Um, the problem with, so first of all, from what I understand, and we, there, there is actually a dispute platform that is being worked on to support the likes of Bitcoin. Um, the, there's a huge weakness, but this is going to be like a couple years away, but there's a huge weakness when it comes to using a cryptocurrency for purchasing a, a travel uh, or for any type of travel purchase. And the problem is you don't have any assurance, um, and, it's, and then you also have an issue with the acceptance. Um, what we have seen as a trend is using crypto to fund prepaid transactions, and then, and then it, it's a trickle-down effect where a chargeback could result as a result of the cryptocurrency um, exchange, but not direct. So movement in the right direction, um, I think we just have to, uh, to see where things go. Thanks for that, Monica. Now, we only have a few minutes left, but I'd like to uh, finish up our hour today by asking first Dennis, then Paul, what are the top trends that you are seeing in terms of fraud, service disputes, etc.? Yeah, sure. I mean, fraud also for us operating in travel and e-commerce is a super big challenge, and um, what we have seen um, tremendously growing this year with um, account takeovers, um, meaning um, in all the fraud prevention processes we have in place and also the feedback from the team, we have more and more cases where we have like really clean data sets um, from, from persons where a whole account was taken over, meaning we have really like um, qualitative high data, I would phrase it. Um, and purchases are made on our platform, so the, the card is really connected to that person. It's really the card owner, so it looks literally for every single AI machine learning tool for any simple agent, it looks pretty qualitatively high and, and genuine. And when those transactions are really ending up as a chargeback, um, it's pretty hard also to defend on our end as, um, as well as on the consumer side, right? He also needs to prove that someone really took over his, all his information and really argue why exactly all those informations are matching. So this is really definitely a challenge for us. In terms of service disputes, um, I would say it, it's mixed. It's, it's still ongoing, but it's not significantly increasing. But our focus is more really like on the prevention side, really like avoiding chargebacks from being happening and making sure that we follow the trends, the patterns, the industry really shows. And that's already a tough challenge as it really changes from day to day. And again, the account takeover scenarios we have experienced, that is currently our biggest challenge. Well, sadly, we are out of time. We did not get to all of our audience questions today. But I'd like to thank our panelists today, Dennis Kohler, Paul Van Offen, and Monica 
Cardone, uh, being with us on our Chargebacks webinar. This is Dee Dee Doak signing off from London. Good afternoon.